It's time to rock your midlife with Dr. Ellen Albertson. Are you ready to get real, break through, and learn how to make your midlife the best time of your life? Take on those life challenges and turn them into opportunities? Let's rock. Here's Dr. Ellen. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rock Your Midlife. If you're a returning listener, I am so glad that you have come back to listen to our show today. And if you're new, welcome. We have people from all over the world and uh, super excited about today's show. I'm always excited, but today's show, we're going to make some noise. You know, we are really going to talk about blossoming, blooming at midlife because, you know, as midlife women, we have a lot going for us. And then we have the society going against us that says that it's not okay to get old, that you become irrelevant, that if you're going through menopause, there's something wrong with you. And we've been hiding it for years and we're starting to make some noise. And I've got two guests today who are going to shout loud and clear. Uh, We are going to be talking with Claire Gill. She is founder of the National Menopause Foundation, a trusted and relatable resource to raise awareness and understanding of menopause through education, activism, and community building. And then we're going to talk to author Sari Botten. She has written an amazing book, which I have right here, and you may find yourself uh, Confessions of a Late Blooming Gen X Weirdo. It's a it's a fun book, but also very vulnerable. So we're talking about some tough stuff. And I was thinking about today's show, and I really wanted to um, share one of my favorite quotes, which is from Anise Nin, who says, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And I think that's what so many women that I talk to at midlife that I have coached face of this sense of like, I'm comfortably uncomfortable, like I'm safe and I'm going through my life doing the same old, same old every day, but God, I've lost my joy and my confidence and my sense of purpose and my energy and I want it back. And, you know, personally, I'm more afraid of getting to the end of my life and having regrets than I am of coming out, being vulnerable sharing my truth. And today's show, I think we're really going to, you know, share a lot of information about menopause, a lot of information about being yourself as you navigate this this time period, which is really an unraveling that we haven't talked enough about primarily because, you know, until very recently, people got through menopause and then they croaked. We didn't even get there. And this is the first time in history that we're living to 80, 90, even 100. I mean, I have friends that are 100 and it's phenomenal. And I want to get there. And I have to say, and I was thinking about this issue as I was preparing for today's show, drum roll. Oh my goodness, it's almost December and I turned 60 this month. Okay, I'm saying it live on air, coming on out. I turned 60 and initially like, I was like, do I say that? Because maybe I'll become irrelevant. You know, maybe the people who follow me, I know I've got millennials, Gen X, people following me and thinking, gosh, is she relatable? Is she, you know, someone that I want to follow? And I said, my truth is that, first of all, age is just, it's a number. It is chronological. Um, It represents the times I've been around the sun. Um, I am wiser. I am stronger. I am bolder. I am more empowered. Uh, you know, I've made it through blindness, cancer, childbirth. 
And I'm rocking it and I feel fantastic. And I think we are reimagining and reinventing this time period. I am energized. I feel great. I am in an amazing relationship with an incredible man who I met, uh, I think, 28 months ago. And we are in love. I've got two grown children who are thriving. I love my career. So I love my life. And so it's a number, you know, and I think that the more we talk about menopause, the more we shed light on this this elephant that's in the room on aging, the more it scurries away and it's just a shadow and we can move on in our lives. And I'm so grateful that we're talking about menopause and aging because when I was going through menopause, it was not on the radar screen. Like I didn't even think about it. And I really feel, and that was about, you know, I went into officially menopause when I was 56. So four years ago, Um, But even in the last five years, it's changed because we are talking about it and we are discussing various techniques and we are taking it out of the closet and saying it's not a disability, but it can make you feel disabled. And so I am so excited to welcome our first guest. And she is really, it's one of the places that's working to normalize menopause. Um, She's Claire Gill, and she is founder of the National Menopause Foundation. She launched the National Menopause Foundation in September of 2019. Its mission is to be a trusted and relatable resource to raise awareness and understanding of menopause through education, activism, and community building. Previously, Ms. Gill spent 20 plus years in public relations and marketing for national nonprofits and public relations firms with Fortune 500 clients. So she understands the corporate workplace and what it is like to be aging. And she is a respected leader in women's health. She serves in a variety of coalitions and working groups promoting the needs of women at midlife. She also hosts the Positive Pause podcast, featuring interviews with experts on a variety of topics impacting women's health and well-being. I listened to several episodes, which are tremendous. Welcome to Rock Your Menopause, Claire. Thank you for being here and rocking midlife. I know. Thank you so much. I'm really pleased to be here. And I just love the title of this podcast. I think that is inspiration in and of of itself. So I'm so glad you called it that. Thanks. Well, it's also the name of my book. And I feel like, yes, we are. We are rocking it. Like we're not in rocking chairs, right? We're rocking midlife. So I guess my first question is what motivated you to create the National Menopause Foundation? And how did you get the courage to do it? Because I could imagine I I talked to a lot of women at at midlife and we're like, oh, I'm so comfortable in my corporate thing. And how do I like, oh my God, step outside. And I have this vision of what I want to do. How did you have that why and that how to do it? It was really serendipitous, actually. I had I've been working in um, women's health for about eight years at the time and uh, at the Bone Health and Osteoporosis Foundation, uh, which was the National Osteoporosis Foundation back then. And um, it was on conversations we had there with some people about needing to use our resources because there was no patient advocacy organization. There was no consumer advocacy organization for women at menopause. And we all just paused in the conversation and was, wait, wait, what? And um, I, I'm sure people are aware there's pretty much a nonprofit for everything. So the fact that there wasn't a nonprofit addressing the needs of women at menopause was just a shock to me. Now, that's not to say there were some fantastic organizations out there that were kind of hybrids, like a for-profit, nonprofit combination. There's fantastic clinical organizations, which also have great uh, patient information. But there wasn't anything where I thought of as what I would say a traditional nonprofit 
providing education and support to women at menopause. Isn't and that amazing so, though, when you pause and you think about that and you think about, you know, 50% of the population, and I don't know, I think you've got the statistic, how many women go into menopause? And we're talking, we're really talking about perimenopause and dealing with it, but that moment when you've been yeah. a year without a period, but how many women are experiencing this? The status is about 1.3 million women in the US every year, right? Yeah, so it's crazy. It's like you said, it's half the population. Um, we're, uh, and, and as you said, it's a natural stage of life. You know, it's what, we, what we're doing, like do we talk about puberty, should be how we talk about menopause, and it's not. But I think what's really interesting around that point is most women know so little about menopause. You know, we've heard rumors, we know what the word, and we know about hot flashes. And that's really it. And when you talked about perimenopause and like the stages of menopause, most women don't know about that until they're sort of start experiencing symptoms at an age where they thought this isn't possible. You know, I'm not old enough for menopause, but they don't realize that there's stages and we evolve and transform through it. And so that's, I think, what's really important that women understand the basics of menopause. And unfortunately, healthcare providers don't know enough about menopause to be able to help women. So when you combine those two things, it becomes this, again, enigma that it shouldn't be. It's not a mystery. It's a stage of life. Um, so hopefully with this podcast and through the National Menopause Foundation and others, we'll help bring that about where people just know what's happening and they're ready for it and they thrive during it. Yeah, and it's really true. I think I think it can be such a powerful time to hit pause, right? And say, okay, I really need to take a look at where I'm at. I need to take a look at, you know, certainly I'm a registered dietitian. So certainly taking a look at my diet, taking a look at my movement in terms of like bone health, like what am I doing for my bone health? What am I doing with my heart health? What are the, the implications of the changing hormone levels? How is that going to impact my health and well-being? So I know we only have a short amount of time, but Claire, what are like the top, you know, five or th things that if you were talking to women in menopause that, that we really need to know okay. about this time period about getting through menopause? So the, the, the things we need to know is one of the stages. So there's perimenopause that you mentioned. That's basically the precursor, the lead into menopause. Menopause itself is the day when our menstrual cycle stops for 12 consecutive months. That's How many of us have a party on that day, right? I know that day. Mine was like July 5th, you know, I guess four, four years ago, but we should, because it's kind of a cool passage. It is. It's the same thing. Like, you know, many people remember the first day they have their period, you know, that kind of stuff. So the same thing, the last period is maybe potentially something to celebrate. And then that's, so that's menopause. And then everything before that is perimenopause. Everything after that is postmenopause. So it really is a stage, but what we think of as menopause is actually really the three of those combined. And so what we need to know is that the average age that we enter menopause in the United States is about 51, but symptoms of menopause generally start five to seven years earlier, and they continue five to seven years after the day your period stops and you enter menopause. And those are averages. I wanna make that very clear. Many women experience symptoms much earlier and many women experience symptoms much longer. And those symptoms also depend on our ethnicity as well and a lot about our genetics. So it really is a very personal thing for women. We can put averages to it, but how it happens and when it happens and what symptoms you have are very, very much related to just you. 
So we're all in it together as far as we're all, if you're healthy enough, as we said, to live to menopause and beyond, then you're, you're in good company. There's a lot of women going through it. So I think it's really important that women know that those are the stages and that you might be experiencing some weird symptoms when you think you're too young for it or when you think you're too old for it. You're not. That is just your normal. Um, and yeah. I think it's really important that women also realize that we have to address those symptoms with our healthcare providers. And many, many women are not doing it and we're suffering, less, suffering needlessly because of that. Yeah, and I want to say, and I want to get into the genetic piece because I think that's really important, but also the lifestyle piece is so important. There is so much that you can do. Diet plays a huge role. And I always emphasizing a whole food, plant-based diet exercise, super duper important for both the, the bone density, the stress reduction, feeling good, having energy, sleep. I mean, that's something that if you're, you know, women, I think it's interesting that, we have the highest rate of mental illness, I'm sorry, of depression for any group for our age and gender. It's about 13%. And so we don't know if it's actually the hormone changes that causes the menopause or some of the effects of the of menopause, but there is so much that you can do. Staying hydrated, you know, learning to practice self-compassion, advocating for yourself when you're, you know, with your doctor, if your doctor doesn't have the answers, going somewhere else, advocating at work. You're saying, can I work from home today? I'm having a tough day, all of those things. But I'm also super curious about the um, ethnicity. Can you share a little bit of what uh, what that is? Because I wasn't actually aware that it yeah. actually differs in terms of, you know, genetically. Yeah, there are, you know, physiological things that happen to us differently based on our ethnicity when it comes to menopause. So um, black women tend to experience hot flashes longer than Caucasian women. Um, Hispanic women also tend to experience hot flashes longer, but the intensity is different. Um, so there's all of these things that happen to us and based on our ethnicity, it can impact the types of symptoms that we have, um, whether or not we have uh, diabetes as an onset, you know, at that time. And um, how we address the symptoms also is very dependent on cultural aspects of our lives too and societal aspects. So, you know, it's amazing when you think about there's so much we don't yet know about the female body. <laughs> and it's crazy that in 2022, that is the case. But it really is something that needs to be studied. And we need to have more investment in dollars to be able to, to study women, because most of the science was basically done on men, and then sort of interpreted for women, because of what I shared about the fact that it's so individualistic, you know, when we get our periods, when we ovulate, whether or not we have infertility issues or not, when our cycle happens, how we experience that cycle is so different and impacts our health so much that studying it becomes more complicated and more expensive. So people avoid it. And so I think all of us as women going through this stage of life should basically step up to say, no, you're going to spend the time and energy it takes to study this so that we get the answers we deserve about how to improve our health and how to have wonderful long, longevity and an active and healthy aging versus just not knowing and just getting by. Yeah. And it's not just menopause. I mean, I think heart disease is such a, another example of heart disease is the leading killer of women, period. And we experience it very differently. 
That's right. We don't have the always have that classic like oh, having a heart attack. It could be a general feeling of you know fatigue or you know all kind or just fogginess, all kinds of things. So we definitely need to be shedding more light. What are two other things that you have found women need to know about menopause? We talked about the three stages. We talked about it being different depending on your genetics. What's the one or two other things? I think that, that women really, need to know. It's also really important to know about the numbers and types of symptoms. So there's actually about 34 symptoms of menopause. And when you kind of just talk about it casually, we think people know about hot sweat, uh, hot flashes and night sweats, right? Those are the two things that most people associate with, with menopause and, uh, and they're often joked about. Um, but there are, again, so many other symptoms. Um, weight gain obviously is one that we as women pay a lot of attention to, but where we store fat actually changes mm. with the loss of estrogen. And I know you know a lot about that as a, as a dietitian too, knowing that again, it's just, it does change. So we have a lot of women say, I'm eating the same, I'm moving the same, and yet I'm gaining weight or it's not working the same way as it used to in my routine. Um, and that is just because, again, of this, this kind of physiological change that's happening in us, and we have to adapt to that. So I think the other thing that people don't know, which we had touched on a little bit about when you said mentioned about mental health, is so many times women experience and say in our conversations with them and in surveys with them about the mental health aspect of it. I've never been depressed, and I'm depressed, or I have anxiety. Or, and again, I'm not sleeping. Insomnia is huge for women at menopause. And so all of those things, you know, it's sort of one of those, is it, am I depressed because I'm not sleeping? Or is it because of, am I not sleeping because I'm depressed? Uh, you know, what is happening? And so those are kinds of things that women need to know are normal. It's okay to talk to about, about it. And I think most importantly, it's really important that you talk to your healthcare provider about it. Because as you said, there are so many things that can be done both medically and over the counter and naturally with diet, exercise, you know, other opportunities to uh, wear layered clothing, um, all kinds of things that we can do to adapt. But you need to have that conversation and find out what's going on. I'd like to one, one other point about that's really important, and I don't know if we'll touch on this maybe later too, but hormone replacement therapy, which has become a very controversial topic. Um, and most women of our generation have avoided it completely, primarily because of a study that was called the Women's Health Initiative that came out in 2002 um, by the National Institutes of Health, which showed, and most women I know who even don't know that much about menopause know this, that there was a reported higher incidence of risk of breast cancer, heart, cardiovascular issues, and stroke for people who took hormone replacement therapy. And therefore, Gynecologists and clinicians stopped prescribing and women refused to take it. So 20 years later, we now know that follow-up on those studies is that the patient population that was looked at were looked at 65 and older is when they had those risks. Now, most women 65 and older don't need to be on hormone replacement therapy. So the fact that mm -hmm. that's what the study was looking at and wow. that's where the risk lay is very different than me taking hormone replacement therapy if I needed it at 50s and then doing an onset. So what we've what studies have shown is decrease in hormone replacement therapy by 94% over the last 20 years. And what that means is women of our generation are suffering from hormone from menopause-related symptoms very differently than our mothers and our grandmothers did. 
So when people talk about why is there such an uptick to it now? Why are we talking about menopause? Isn't this great? It is because women of our age have been getting no support or help for it and are speaking out. And I think that's what's really great. Yeah, they're speaking out important. And we're also, you know, it's this perfect storm because we're working. I know when I was going through, I had, you know, young children, teens, and I was working, getting a PhD, working as a personal fitness trainer. I mean, we're working and we're dealing with, you know, children and aging parents, financial issues, stress. We're not doing the self-care things. And I think so there's this, there's a lot more pressure on women in general, which I think is adding gasoline to all of the hormonal fluctuations that we're experiencing. That's exactly right. It's a very different time. And so it makes sense that now we're starting to address it amongst ourselves and then more publicly where we're not afraid to speak about it and start saying it. Now, we haven't broken the, the taboo by any means, but at least we're starting to see things appearing in pop culture about menopause with you know some characters in movies and on television experiencing menopausal symptoms versus not saying anything about it. However, I am reminded that there was a whole episode of Archie Bunker back in the day, all in the family, where Edith Bunker was going through menopause. So even back then, they were referencing it, but there wasn't any big cultural conversation about it. Now there is. And I think that's really a wonderful time for us to be able to, like we talk about here, thrive during this time of life versus being impeded by some of the symptoms that come with this transition of stage. Yeah. And we've also, you know, you've got celebrities. So I know Drew Barrymore, Gwyneth Paltrow and Cameron Diaz all came together to, to back, I guess, an app and there's, you know, organizations like yours. So if you're listening, you're just talking about it, talking about it to your doctor. And if you don't like what your doctor says and they're not educated, find someone else, just, you know, go to your organization, go, there are lots of places. So let's talk a little bit about, um, why and how does the workplace need to change both in terms of, I want to talk a little bit about ageism, ageism and menopause. Like what can we do? What needs to change? How is it changing if it is? Yeah. Well, I think when I, one part of the thing, when I was telling people that I was starting the foundation and going to be talking about menopause more, people said, great, you need to rebrand menopause and then you need to conquer <laughs> ageism. And I was like, sure, let me get right on that. I will have that done. Uh, but <laughs> the two actually do go hand in hand, right? There is obviously a whole uh, systematic thing about ageism in the United States and around the world, I'm sure, but particularly here in the workforce. And for women going through menopause, we are generally at some of the prominent positions in the companies at that time. And so there is um, a unfortunate um, exit from the workforce for women who basically are kind of struggling, we now know, with menopausal symptoms, and they're just stepping away versus getting the help they need and being able to thrive and continue their great purposeful work. Um, so there is stuff that we need to do within uh, the workforce. And I think primarily what we're going to see um, as a starting point is the education and the conversation about it. There's just lack of awareness and knowledge. Again, like we talked about earlier, women don't know. We are not even taught what to do. And when we you know, think about, again, comparing it to puberty, we learn collectively about puberty during our grade school years. And then there's reproduction classes and there's birthing classes and there's parenting classes. And we have, if you choose that stage, you know, to go pursue parenthood, that's all available to you. And then when it comes to menopause, there is nothing. 
And so that's what we need to do is make sure that there are educational opportunities available for women and employers to understand this stage of life and being able to adjust things within the workforce to keep women productive and in and engaged, as you said, not being pushed out because they aren't, you know, they're experiencing some things or they're not thinking clearly or all of the things that they might be happening that have just to do with a temporary, you know, symptom. Um, once that there's more education and awareness about it, I think we'll find ways to make that a better solution for, for women and flexibility of hours, you know, being able to, if you're having brain fog in the morning, starting your day a little bit later, you know, or if you're having incredible, you know, symptoms of, of sweating, then you're able to stay home and work from home and do those things. But education is the key because I think employers will do what we want them to do and what we need them to do, they have for other stages uh, uh, in women's careers. We're not completely there yet, but we have made some progress. And I think the same will be true for menopause. Yeah, it's such an important conversation to have. I've just uh, finished reading Alfred Brooks' wonderful book, From Strength to Strength. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but you know this this age of 50 to 75 where we have so much wisdom and so much to offer and we're losing workers in the workplace because of course the great resignation so i think that's been a bit of a pressure on the workforce to re-look at this and we do need people who've got more experience um and so so if a woman's listening and she's like well that all sounds really really nice claire and ellen but like what can I actually do in my workplace? Because there are days that I'm going to work and I didn't sleep well and I feel like crap and I'd like to stay home or, but I'm scared that I might lose my job or might not get that advance. You know, how do we navigate this without, you know, hurting our careers? Well, at this stage, like I said, it's, it's, it is very tricky. Right? We do not have the protections in place that we need to have in place for women as they're experiencing this. I think in, in the immediate CC, women can take advantage of a little bit more of their flex time or their, their, their vacation time if they get it. And I think it's, it's such an interesting conversation to be having because, again, when we think about what steps can be taken for women to address this, that's only for you know, those who are able to use sick time and who have sick time and who are not, you know, pressured to be, you know, at the office or at the workplace, you know, no matter what. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, insecurity that we need to address within the workforce as well for, for women and men experiencing any kind of medical medical needs. But if that if it is possible, it's okay. Like you said, have a little self-kindness and be able to take time for yourself and say, you know, I know I think unless I'm really sick, you know, we're going to make it in. And I think COVID took away a little bit of that now where it's sort of like, if you're sniffling and coughing, stay home. No one wants you around, you know? Um, so the same thing though, for experiencing symptoms where we think, oh, it's not enough to, you know, take time and work from home, but it is. And you need to have that kind of self-awareness and be able to do that. If you are in a position of leadership within a company, one of the things that you can do is start that conversation with your peers and see if there's a way for you to be able to make it better for not just yourself, but others in the workforce. And please know that those of us out there advocating and championing this cause uh, at the National Menopause Foundation and elsewhere are working to bring about some of those changes. And we're doing that by surveying um, you know, corporations and employees and sort of finding out what is it that we want to take advantage of versus just assuming what women will do. 
And then also, how do we bring these about to make sure that it's a fair and equitable across every job um, and every level within a company, which is also really important. So we're not 100% there for sure. We're not 100% there across the board in anything that we do in the workforce for our, our employee health, but we are going to be working towards making some changes and difference, making it better for, for women and men. Yeah, that's so powerful. And I would say two other things to add that you can talk to, if you are in a big enough company, talk to HR, you know, see what can be made in terms of things to give yourself a break. And if you feel like you're discriminated against, there have been cases that have been won because of age discrimination. And also know, you know, it's about empowering yourself and knowing that the more each one of us speaks up, whether that is in the physician's office or it's in the boardroom and let it be known that this is not a disability, this is normal, I'm going through this, I I want some support and help. The more that all of us do it, that's going to change. Each and every single one of us can be an advocate for change wherever we find ourselves. So thank you, Claire, so much, so much good information. I have learned so much. We're going to take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with Sari Botton. She is the author of, and you may find yourself, Confessions of a Late Blooming Gen X Weirdo. I love that she's got... Um, Cherry blossoms, I believe, because I just love flowers because it's like it's like midlife, right? We've got this time to just be the flower that we are and blossom. This sense that life is short and just like a flower, it's like time to just be your beautiful self. Let it all hang out. If you're a dandelion, be a dandelion. If you are cherry blossom, a peony, a rose, whatever it is. So we're gonna take a break. We'll see you on the other side. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Midlife can be challenging. You may be sandwiched between growing kids and aging parents, dealing with menopause and trying to find work-life balance. Or maybe your life looks good on the outside, but inside you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed and wondering how to get your confidence and joy back. You need someone to help you get real, discover who you are, and navigate life. Hi, I'm Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer, and I'm here to help. I've worked with hundreds of midlife women, went from surviving to thriving at midlife myself, and literally wrote the book on this pivotal time period, Rock Your Midlife, Seven Steps to Transform Yourself and Make Your Next Chapter Your Best Chapter. Think of me as the one-stop shop for all your midlife needs. I'm a psychologist, nutritionist, and board-certified health and wellness coach with 30 years of experience empowering midlife women. I provide nutrition consults, life coaching, and free resources to help you transform your body, your mind, your career, and your relationships. Feeling stuck? I can help you figure out how to live authentically with joy, passion, and purpose. Every Wednesday here on Voice America, live from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I share my passion for making the most of midlife and my expertise on the most pressing midlife issues from changing family relationships, managing stress, and securing enough resources to rediscovering yourself. I also interview experts from around the world to help you navigate your life. For more information, please visit my website, themidlifewhisperer.com, for fabulous resources, including my free gift, 
10 Tips to Rock Your Midlife. That's the midlifewhisperer.com. Hope to see you there soon. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Rock Your Midlife with Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer. Have a question for Dr. Ellen or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here again is Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Rock Your Midlife. Thank you so much for being here. If you'd like to get in touch with me, just go to themidlifewhisperer.com, themidlifewhisperer.com, or you can email me at info at themidlifewhisperer.com. And I want to let you know that I have a great program that is coming up in 2023. It is Midlife Reboot. It is a three-week experience that's going to help you to really live with more joy, less awe, as I like to put it, more confidence and have more energy. So if you're looking to take action and get support, reach out to me and I will share all the details of that. And now I'm so excited to welcome our next guest. She is Sari Botton. She is the author of the memoir in essays, and you may find yourself Confessions of a Late Blooming Gen X Weirdo. She is a contributing editor and columnist at Catapult and the former essays editor of Long Reads. She edited the best-selling of anthologies, Goodbye to All That Writers on Loving and Leaving New York, and Never Can Say Goodbye Writers on Their Unshakable Love for New York. She teaches creative nonfiction at Catapult, Bay Path University, and Kingston Writer Studio. And she is she also publishes Oldster Magazine, Memorial Monday, and Adventures in Journalism. Welcome to Rock Your Midlife, Sari. Good to have you here. It's such a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And before we dive in, I just have a big thank you. I've been reading your book. I haven't finished it. And my goodness, thank you for writing this book. So much courage. Like talk about coming out of your, out of your, your bud and just very vulnerable and sharing. So thank you for that. So before we dive into your book, which is super juicy, folks do grab it. Great Christmas gift as well. I know that you have a question for Claire. I do. Um, So Claire, a while ago, I tweeted um, that when I drink alcohol, I feel as if I've been poisoned. And that is a change that happened with menopause. Um, And uh, like 300 women responded. And an editor from the New York Times responded and said, would you want to write about this, you know, and invest like, you know, a researched piece? I said, yes. And then I started to do research and every menopause expert I interviewed said there has not been one single study on alcohol metabolism and menopause or even aging. And this is so disturbing to me because, I mean, I can't drink anymore at all. Um, and I, that's fine. I can live without it, but I want to know what's happening and if there's anything I can do. And I wonder if it's something that you've come across and if not, whether you have any suggestions for, you know, who we can turn to and say, Hey, do a study on this because (laughs) it's a bummer. (laughs) Yeah. Just to chime in too. Like, I hate the way I feel when I drink, like that's my 
dopamine receptors just don't work the same way. I feel like halfway through a glass of wine, I start to feel hungover, which is, and, and so many women responded to my tweet saying, that's me. So that's it's this thing that's happening to people. Why yeah. isn't it studied? But also like, where can we get information on this? Well, you're right. It is not studied. Um, and that is, uh, again, when I get to why, it's because it's not cost effective to study uh, women. And then when you're talking about nutritional things, I'm sure Dr. Ellen can weigh in even less so um, sometimes when we think about, you know, studying the impact of nutrition on, on our overall health in general. Um, so you're right. Many, many women do mention that. And it's often raised as one of the things that, you know, to avoid to avoid, you know, hot flashes and things, stop drinking, you know, alcohol, be careful of alcohol, be careful of spicy foods. Some people find it with caffeine as well. I mean, there's several things that happen and you're right. We don't have the studies on it. So on what to do about it, I guess is perhaps try some of the non-alcoholic uh, options that are available. If you truly like to be social and want to sort of engage um, in that, it, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> um, there is that option. Um, and, and again, personally too, I don't, I don't feel sick, uh, but I sweat when I drink now. And um, my response is people are just going to have to deal with me sweating um, <laughs> <laughs> because sometimes it's necessary. But right, it's not. So I would say the same thing. The only thing we can do now is really adjust, but keep tracking, but keep track of that. What are the types of things like you found that with wine makes you that? Do other, you know, clear alcohols do it? Does beer, you know? They all do. They all do. And what it is. Um, And then, yeah. So, but that is something that if you're finding that you're getting symptoms around that, it is a menopausal symptom that that is something that's adjusting to. As far as where to study it or who should study it, uh, across the board, we need to, make um, our uh, research institutions studies women's health more. The NIH, uh, the National Institutes of Health is the largest. Um, I met with all of the women's health offices at all of the federal agencies, Health and Human Services, the Centers for Disease Control, the Labor Department, the NIH and the National Institute of Aging, and asked them about their priorities of menopause. And while all of them have information about menopause that none of us know about or are going to, they have excellent information. And their response was, they are funded by Congress. So if we want women's health to be studied, we need to advocate for ourselves. And they put it back on me, just like rebrand menopause and you know take care of ageism. Get out there and advocate. So I welcome everybody to do that with us. You know, Go to our website, get involved, and let's make a difference and figure out some of these things that we don't know about women's health. Thanks so much for that question. Yeah, and I'm sorry you're not question. being able to experience that, uh, <laughs> you know, that social uh, aspect of it. But yeah, try some of the non-alcoholic and then let us know how they are. They've been improving over the years. Oh, too. yeah. I have a, There's a gluten-free, non-alcoholic, athletic brand um, beer called uh, Upside Dawn, that that's now what I drink, not just seltzer. Um, and thank you for that answer. And also thank you for the work you're doing because it's so important. Uh, well, I can't wait to read your book because I the late blooming basically divides <laughs> So I'm so excited. Well, I love that question too, because I thought it was just me. <laughs> so, but that's why that shows why we need to talk about it because I wasn't aware. I mean, when I was diagnosed with cancer in particular, I was like, alcohol's got to go. I wasn't really enjoying it. I wasn't getting the same thing. So I'm glad that you raised that. Thank you for that. And thank you for your book. I mean, I guess my first question, having written my book and my book is not as memoir-esque as yours, although I do, you know, reveal some stuff. How did you get the courage? Because you talk about, you know, 
some, you know, you let it all hang out there and it takes a lot of courage and bravery. And I guess that's, that is what memoir is about, but how do you get the courage and thank you for being so vulnerable? Thank you. You know, it's, it took me a really long time. I was wrestling with myself and with the concept of the book and with the courage to write the book for decades, literally. I was, there were pieces of it that I'd been working on it for years. I didn't yet quite have the lens through which I was going to tell all the stories that came later, but I knew that there were things that I wanted to be talking about that people weren't talking about. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I've, really been involved uh, in the memoir community for many years and having these discussions with other memoirists and other wannabe memoir with memoirists about how do we do this? Why do we do this? What are the ethical ways to do it? And um, I really became like, a, a, you know, I was on a quest. I was on a very uh, sharply focused quest to figure out the right way to do this. And I think I finally arrived at something that worked and I'm really happy with the way it came out and the way the book has re been received. Um, so thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the term weirdo because I live in Vermont and we're always like, keep Vermont weird. And I also, you know, been spending some time in Austin, which is all about weird, but like weird is good. It's like, I think it means magical, right? It means authenticity and being connected deeply. So I'm curious how you came up with the title and you, you also reference a talking head song. Tell us a little bit more about that. Um, well, the weirdo part, what I've learned through the experience of publishing this book and, and interacting with readers is that everyone thinks they're a weirdo. Everyone is different in one way or another. And, you know, we all obsess on these ways that we're different because we all want to fit in. Um, and, and, um, you know, I knew that I, you know, I, I lay out early in the book the way, the very specific ways in which I felt weird. And I feel like I might have had like a very heavy weird quotient. <laughs> but what I've learned is that everybody thinks they're weird. And that when I was younger, weirdo was a bad term, but now I embrace it with pride. Um, as for the title, and you may find yourself, um, you know, I, there have been many, many times in my life where I've landed somewhere, woken up and then thought, what am I doing here? I've heard David Byrne in my head mm -hmm. so many times. And by the way, The Strand this week has my book right next to David Byrne's book, which I think is brilliant merchandising. Go get it at The Strand if you're in New York City. Um, but um, uh, it's so many times I've had him in my head saying, you know, and you may find yourself. And the, the time it was the loudest was when I was in my early 40s and I was in a fertility clinic with my husband. On some cellular level, I knew that I didn't want to be a mother, but on a higher level, I didn't feel entitled to know that or to embrace that. And I put us through this enormous, horrible endeavor <laughs> of mm -hmm. pursuing fertility. And I was sitting in that fertility doctor's office and I heard David Byrne in my head and you may find yourself in a fertility clinic and you may mm -hmm. ask yourself, what the hell are you doing here? And then I realized that that was the lens through which I wanted to tell all of the stories. And it was all about landing in the wrong places because I wasn't being authentic and I didn't know how to be authentic. And we live in a culture that doesn't make it easy to be authentic and to know who you are. And especially if you're Gen X and you were affected by the divorce boom of the seventies, uh, you know, in your formative years, your family burst apart and nobody knew what the hell they were doing. It really led to a lot of fractured personalities. 
<laughs> and I feel like that there were a lot of different versions of myself that I kept toggling between before I really came to what was real. Um, and so that's where the title, that's where I got the title yeah. from. I have to say, it's like we're climbing up this ladder of success, but it's up against the wrong building. And so in my, in my book, Rock Your Midlife, authenticity is the first step. You cannot rock midlife if you are not being yourself because you're doing all these things like your, your fertility clinic's a perfect example. All these things that you think you're supposed to be doing instead of being who you really are and what is really meaningful and you're not tapping into your heart and into, and into that, that courage. So bravo for doing that. So I also have to, Diana, ask you, so that quote that I, that I gave that you have tattooed, which I just love the synchronicity of all of that. Yeah. So I'll say that if you're just joining and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom that you've tattooed on you is not a knees and in. No, How did you and find I, out? You tell about that in the book. I haven't read that part yet. Yes. Okay. So I have, um, I have a chapter called the girl with the nerd tattoos. I have three tattoos. And the first one was that quote. And when I got that quote, I thought it came from a nice nin. Um, and then Years later, I was interviewing the legendary um, magazine editor, Joan Juliet Buck, and she spotted the tattoo. She read it and she said, I knew Anais Nin and I loved her. And then she said, which book is that from? And I just stood there dumbfounded because I didn't know what book it was from. I am not like a Nin scholar. I've read a few things, you know, I didn't pick the quote because it was from Nin. I picked it because it really spoke to this need I had to blossom from this bud that I was wound up in. So when I got home from my interview with Joan, I immediately Googled the quote and I found out that just six months before a woman named um, Elizabeth Appel had come forward to the Anais Nin Association and told them, it's not Anais Nin, it's me. It was a quote that she, it was a poem she wrote for an adult ed college where she was a publicist. She was encouraging people to go back to college and she did it with these blossoms all around it. It was in the seventies. The thing went out and somebody picked it up and started circulating it. And the next thing she knew, it was everywhere and attributed to Anais Nin. And then she went to a reading, a friend's poetry reading, and her friend stood up and read it, you know, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. Anais Nin and her husband, uh, Elizabeth uh, Appel's husband, stood up and said, no, it's my wife who said that. And um, at the time, she was like a little bit mortified, but then she said, you know what? I wrote those words. So, Ironically, I had been considering also tattooing an attribution on my arm, but I will not do that. <laughs> well, that is a, that is an amazing story. I didn't, I had no idea. So I'm curious, I haven't read the whole book. I'm going to dig more into it this weekend. What's your favorite story in the book? Like, what's the story that you felt, you know, as a fellow writer, you know, you write something and you're like, I know for me, I'm always like, Marie Oliver, Mary Oliver, that's my, you know, that's my, when I read her work, I just want to never write another word or work on my writing even more. But like, where is that place as an author to author that you wrote? And you're like, wow, that's that story. I love when that came out. Cause I think that's some of the joy of writing, correct? That we just read it back and we go, wow. And then other people are like, wow, that really impacted me. But what do you love about your book? There, there are two pieces that feel to me um, like very central 
pieces to the book. Um, one is called uh, Hurricane Tim. Um, that is about uh, this relationship I had where I sort of created an alternative identity. I call her Outdoorsy Sari. Um, and Outdoorsy Sari was doing all these, um, you know, mountaineering type things that were a way out of my league and B, I wasn't really interested in them. I was trying to make myself who Tim would like, you know. Um, but in that uh, chapter, I also talk about calling a, um, a 1-900 psychic and um, actually getting some really, really great advice um, from someone who I think was actually Stephen Glass, um, who was the, the journalist who falsified his um, article for Harper's about working for 1-900 psychics. I'm almost certain it was him. It was in the late 90s. And he basically said, you know what? Not everybody's supposed to get you. Just be really yourself. And the ones who don't get you will fall away and it's okay. And it was like, whoa, you know, it was mind blowing. Um, and the other uh, piece in there that really feels like central is my hysterectomy, a love story, which mm -hmm. is the story of, that begins with me in that fertility clinic. Or I actually, the story doesn't start there. It starts somewhere else, but um it, it contains that that anecdote of be, being in the fertility clinic and just not knowing why, why I'm there. And it's the journey for me from um, feeling like I had to at least, uh, you know, kind of um, pursue motherhood, even if I didn't want it. And then realizing it wasn't for me, but I, I felt like I needed a doctor's note and I did get a doctor's note. I was told I needed a hysterectomy. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. And that's why it's called my hysterectomy, a love story. <laughs> yeah, I will definitely have to check those out. And um, so we only have a few minutes left. I know that Claire, I'm sure has many a question for you, Sarah, and thank you for everything you've shared. And I will definitely enjoy your book again. The book is, and you may find yourself Confessions of a Late Blooming Gen X Weird would be a great Christmas gift. Um, what do you have a question for um, Sari Claire? I do. Like you said, I have I have a ton. I just love the whole concept of this and like really be becoming into who you were meant to be from the beginning. So one of the questions I have is, as you were writing and as I'm thinking about this, you said you know taking you decades to come across. There's something that you think would be helpful for uh, parents as we're raising young people to embrace the weirdo within and make that something uh, important. What would, what would you suggest? Yeah, or, really. Just parents, just as we're, as we're cultivating and working and being around young people, how, how do we, how do we help foster that, that, that weirdo as unique and beautiful? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I feel like a lot of parents in my generation, Gen X, um, we're trying to correct us, make us more normal. Um, and I would encourage parents to embrace the ways that their kids are different. Don't make them conform. I think my book is a lot about finding the courage to not conform in various ways. 
Um, and, and so embrace your kids' weirdness. Um, encourage them to be creative. Encourage them to, um, you know, like maybe hang back a little. Don't always react to every choice they make, everything they say. Let them express who they are. I see a lot of parents doing this now, um, especially around gender. I see a lot of friends allowing their toddlers to be whoever they are gender wise. And I embrace that. I think that's really fantastic. Um, but it should be in all ways. If your friend is creative and weird, uh, if you're not your friend, your child, <laughs> but do it for your, your friends, friends too. too, by the way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I would add to that too, is be authentic and weird yourself because our kids are always looking at us, you know, whether it's your own kid or someone else that you're involved, be weird yourself. And I, one thing I wanted to reference before Sarah, when you, were, when you were talking is that we automatically, we have this default mode network that's constantly scanning our environment for what, for self-definition and what is wrong with us and how we fit in. It goes way back. I'm reading Sapiens right now, which is fascinating, but way back where we're trying to figure out where we fit in this tribe. But now we've got this tribe of 8 billion and we've got these cell phones and we're figuring out how do I fit in and we're measuring ourselves, but understand that everybody is doing it and nobody's actually looking at you because we're all so obsessed with ourselves and also just the essence of what confidence is. Confidence means confiding in yourself, trusting yourself. And I guess just being that voice, that a, a compassionate listening, just listening to your kid and being like, who are you? How are you? What's going on? And that that they can really turn to that. So yeah, that's such a fantastic question. So we just have a couple of moments left. I want to make sure that our listeners can connect and find you guys. So Claire, again, how do people connect with you? I know you're all over social media. You've got a great website. What's the best way for people to connect with you, get information, support you? Yeah. Um, so absolutely. Yeah. You can probably Google and find me just as, uh, you know, Claire Gill, the National Menopause Foundation. Um, and it's the nationalmenopausefoundation.org is the website. Um, that would be the easiest. And yeah, I definitely welcome anyone reaching out with questions or wanting to get involved or share their story. There's so many opportunities we have to be able to do that productively, um, not just within ourselves, but also helping to educate the healthcare community. You know, I have a lot of women sharing their stories to be able to help healthcare providers better identify women going through menopause. So um, yeah, love to hear okay. from you. National Menopause Foundation. And Sari, I know we can get your book probably everywhere. It's And you may find yourself Confessions of a Late Blooming Gen X Weirdo. We didn't talk about Oldster Magazine. So you yes. that as well. Oldster Magazine, you can get there at oldstermagazine.com or oldster.substack.com. And my website is saribotten.com. And, um, and you can buy my book everywhere. And thank you so much for having me on. And it's so great to meet you too, uh, Claire. Great to have both of you on. And thank you all so much for listening. Please advocate for yourself. Be a weirdo. Know that menopause is normal and you are not alone. And uh, have a great rest of your week. And we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to Rock Your Midlife. I'm Dr. Ellen, the Midlife Whisperer. Thanks for listening to Rock Your Midlife. We hope this episode has helped you get real discover who you are, and get the tools to navigate your life. Until we talk again, have a fantastic week and go rock your midlife.